Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, folks. Uh, let me add my welcome to Matt's. My name's Andrew. I'm the senior minister here. It's really good to be with you this evening. Um, just to uh, add to the announcements, I've been really encouraged by the people who have been volunteering and signing up for things. Thank you so much. Um, sometimes it takes a, bit <clears throat> a little while to digest and get back to you on some of those things. If you're still working out what you want to do, can I really encourage you to think about We Belong? I was meeting with uh, some of the We Belong leaders this afternoon, and they would really love a bit of help. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we will give a bit more information about what that involves. We'll interview somebody, we hope. But if you are thinking about that, come and have a chat to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. We are in the second week of a series looking at the prophet Elijah, who's this guy who turns up in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings. 
Uh, we're in our second week. The passage and a sermon outline is, is in the sheets you were given on the way in if you want it. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, would you teach us of yourself and of the way of faith as we read this scripture this evening. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Christians talk a lot about faith. One of the ways you can describe this thing that we're doing at church is Christian faith. But what is faith really? What does it look like as it's actually lived out, you know, in real life? What should faith look like? These are especially interesting questions for those who are new to church or checking out Christian faith, and there's some of them among us, which is really fantastic. The whole faith thing, when you start off, can seem a bit mysterious. But they're also interesting questions for those who've been around for a while, because it's quite possible in the life of faith to actually kind of lose your bearings at some point, to to look around you and wonder whether this is quite going the way it's supposed to. But how do you answer these questions? How do you learn about faith and how it's meant to play out in real life? One way is to learn from one another. Now, this is one of the things church community is for, one of the main things, actually. We learn about what faith looks like by talking to and watching and sharing lives with one another. Uh, This is a great reason to join a small group or a prayer triplet Uh, or at least just to get to know some people here. But while learning from one another is good, it's it's not actually enough. The reason is that experience is an unreliable teacher. Sometimes experience is great, and sometimes it's not. Because sometimes over time, we don't acquire wisdom, but bad habits. Sometimes time just wears in, ideas that are kind of a bit off and makes them harder to dislodge. And all of our experiences are only partial. They're shaped by the particular situations and contexts we're in and the the kind of weird lives we've ended up living so far. So to learn what faith looks like in real life, we need more than just people around us. We need other examples. We need examples that we know we can trust. And this is one of the things that the Lord gives us in Scripture. The Bible is full of examples. Now, not everyone you meet in the Bible is a good model of faith. Some of them are exactly the opposite. But some are good models. And some stories are designed to show us things about the life of faith. I think the stories of Elijah and Elisha uh, work this way. And in particular, the story of the widow of Zarephath that we're reading this evening. Here we get a profound lesson in what faith is like. If I can summarize it under three headings, uh, which will be the structure of the sermon, we see here first something of the nature of faith, what faith is. Second, we see the object of faith, what faith is in, or who faith is in. And thirdly, we see something of the way of faith, how faith works itself out in life. 
So that's where we're going. This isn't everything to learn about Christian faith by any means, but they are things worth learning. All right, come with me then. First, the nature of faith. In the actions of both Elijah and the widow he meets in this story, we see kind of one of the basic building blocks of faith. First, let's look at Elijah. Okay, so last week we saw he ends up at this this brook uh, that's, that's giving him water, but the brook dries up, and it dries up because what he prophesied has happened. There's no rain. Now, what will Elijah do? Well, the word of the Lord comes to him. We're told in verse 8, and it says, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, Zarephath was a long way from where Elijah was. We don't know exactly where the Wadi Kerith, or the, the, the Kerith, the brook we're talking about is, but it's, it was probably down near where the bottom red X is, somewhere like that. Zarephath is right up in Sidon. It's actually out of Israel. It's up in the, in the Phoenician territory of Sidon, uh, right up in the north, where the other X is. So... This is a long journey. What's more, as I said, it's a journey out of Israel and into enemy territory. The heart of enemy territory, actually. Last week, we met King Ahab. If you weren't here, just read the last bit of chapter 16. And we heard how he married a foreigner, Jezebel, who brought in the worship of Baal. Now, if you look back in verse 31, we see that Sidon where Elijah is sent, is actually where Jezebel is from. So Elijah is going right into Baal's territory. And he's going there on the strength of God's promise. Just as he commanded the ravens, so God has commanded a widow to provide for Elijah. God promises Elijah he will provide, and he calls him to to trust him and to act on the basis of that trust. And that's what faith is. Faith is not just believing some stuff. It involves believing things, we'll come back to that, but it's not just believing things, it's not just belief, it means entrusting yourself to God's promises. Faith is active, it's, it's the root of action, if I, as one kind of theological way of putting it has it. It's the foundation of action. It, it kind of gets you going. Because faith means committing yourself. It means entrusting yourself, falling into something. We see this again with the widow. Elijah goes to Zarephath in verse 10, and when he gets there, he finds a widow gathering sticks. And he asks her for a drink, which is bold, given there's a drought, but he's had a pretty long journey. And then with a bit of chutzpah, he adds, and a piece of bread, please. And now we discover that things in Sidon are pretty dire as well. Listen to the widow's response, verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. That last bit, you know, the sentence structure is exactly 
the same in the Hebrew. The English does it really well there. She does her whole speech and then she's like, and die. It is actually a, a real kick in the guts. It shows how awful the situation is. This is a woman for whom all life's options have closed down. All the doors have shut. And now she's just trying to do her final acts with dignity. But now, Elijah opens a door. I think it's because he guesses that this widow is the one God has promised him. And why? Because of the way she greeted him. Did you notice that? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she says. That's a very surprising statement for someone in Sidon to say. So maybe because of that, he thinks this is the one, and he makes her a promise. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not dry will not run dry until the, the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Elijah announces to her God's promise. This is what God says. And he calls her to trust this word and act accordingly. It, it wasn't a small ask, was it? He says, first, make me a loaf of bread, take some of your last flour and oil and use it on me, on the strength of this promise. And she does. And the promise is fulfilled. She went away and did it as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up. And the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. People sometimes say, usually with a bit of a sneer, that faith means believing things without any evidence. That's not true. Elijah certainly has reasons to believe God will keep his promises. He, he, he did with the drought. There's been no rain. He did with the ravens. Now he will with the widow. It's always like that with faith. There can be reasons to trust these promises. And yet there is still always an element of stepping into the dark in faith because it is about trusting promises. And trusting promises always involves stepping forward without knowing everything because it's about the future. Elijah has to trust that God will come good again on what he has said, and the widow has to trust that this word will prove true. Friends, you and I are in the same position. God makes promises to us. He says, if you trust me, I will not let you down. He says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. He says, I will save you, and I will deliver you. But we can't see how those promises are going to come true. At least we can't see all of it. 
We can't see how our lives are going to unfold. We can't see everything about what it's going to look like. Like Elijah and the widow, we have to step forward in obedience on a path that he calls us to because we trust this word. Well, why would you do that? Why do this? We said that Elijah had the evidence of the ravens to encourage him and the lack of rain to trust that God would keep his promises, but that's not actually the most basic reason to trust God's promises. And the widow has none of this evidence. She kind of has the rain if she knew about the promise, but we don't know that. Basically, she has her conviction that the Lord your God lives. So what is it that makes God's promises worth trusting fundamentally? Well, here we get to the second thing this passage teaches us about faith and teaches us about the object of faith because the answer to this question is simply the reality of who and what God is. God's promises are worth trusting because they are God's. They are the promises of the living God. And he is the God who is utterly and completely free to keep his word and never hindered. This passage is actually chock-a-block full of ways in which God is not hindered by things that would normally be hindrances. Do you know what a hindrance is? It's something that gets in your way and stops you doing things. The fact that Sidon is officially Baal's country is not a hindrance for God. Here is a widow, straight away, first person who believes in the Lord. The Lord is free to provide anywhere. He's not bounded and stuck in his territory. Most dramatic, of course, is the way in which God provides food for Elijah and the widow and her son. It's a wonderful miracle, isn't it? Because it's, it's both so matter-of-fact and so mysterious. How does it happen? Oh, well, the jug of flour... And the jug, they just don't get used up. What? They didn't end. They kept going. This reminds me very much of the miracles of Jesus. For me, these actually really have a, a, a ring of authenticity to them, the way they're described. Same with Jesus. When Jesus turns water into wine, or when five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 people, We're never told how it happens. It just happens. Jesus just says, oh, we'll fill the jars with water and draw some out, and it turns out to be wine. Or he says, how much food do you guys have? And they say, oh, we got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, cool, hand them out. And 5,000 people get fed, and there's leftovers. Really interesting, the way it just seems like Well, of course it was going to happen like that when Jesus did it. It's like it's the most natural thing in the world. The same is actually true, I think, of the resurrection of Jesus. The weirdest thing about the stories of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels, the accounts, is how not weird it is. Jesus is just alive now. Alive and and totally free and unhindered. 
He can meet his disciples wherever they are, on the road, in the garden, in a locked room. His life seems to be the realest and most natural thing in the world. It's, it's, it's almost like everything else in life is odd and strange now. It doesn't need to be magic or weird, you see, because this is the living God at work. The living creator God who is, who is simply free, who is not hindered in his purpose by creation and its limits in the way we are. He's not even hindered by death. Sure, normally flour and oil get used up, but not now, because this is God at work. The true God, the living God, you see, he's, he's not just some other bigger force like we often imagine the gods are, like Baal was imagined, for example. God is not just a bigger force that's still basically subject to the same limits as everything else is. No, God is not just bigger than us or different from creation. He actually can't be compared to creation at all. God transcends creation so much that he doesn't need to be distant and far off, but can be close and perfectly present here within it. He can be available and intimate and active without ceasing to be high and holy and free. It's actually really hard to talk about God well. But it is important to try. Because the God we meet in the Bible is not just a projection of our ideals and imaginations. That's one of the great risks with God. This is something, people have seen it, but if, if you know anything about the history of philosophy, this was Feuerbach's big shtick. He said, actually, all the gods, they're just projections of human ideals. They're just bigger versions of things we like. But the God of the Bible is not that. He is a God who is much, much, much beyond that. He's the God who lives and so is infinitely free. And this is the one who makes promises to Elijah and to the widow and to us. And so I need to ask you, friends, a question that seems like a dumb question. It seems like it's too straightforward to be worth asking, but it is worth asking. Do you believe in God, actually? Like, not just God, but the living God. You believe that it's, it's, it's really not just this world and this universe and all its forces and powers known and unknown, but behind and before and within and over all of it, there is one, the living God who is perfectly, utterly free, who is not limited, who is not hindered in the way creation is. And he speaks his word to us and says, Trust it. He is the reason to trust it. But is that enough? Is that enough? 
actually? Is it enough to know that God is powerful and free? Which is what I've been saying. Is that enough to entrust yourself, your life, to the strength of his promise? Because what if, because here's the thought, right? What if God is powerful and free, but not good? That is the terrifying thought that the widow and Elijah face at the end of this passage, this story. See, in verse 17, we hear the widow's son is sick, very sick. It's a description that will trouble us. It says, he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Now, the mother is distressed, of course. But more than that, she's angry. Listen to what she says in verse 18. It's, it's a very striking thing that she says. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? What's going on here? What we see here, I think, is that this woman's faith has actually opened up a new dimension of suffering. If she didn't believe in God, you see, what, she was, what she's going through, it, it would be awful, certainly. But there wouldn't be this horrible spiritual confusion wound up in it. But because she is a woman who is, has come to believe, suddenly profoundly painful questions open up. Why? Why? God, you could have done something about this. So why haven't you? Have you got something against me? The prospect opens up that maybe the answer is the Lord is against her. He's not for her at all. Perhaps the Lord has come into her life to do her evil. Maybe she would have been better off without him. Some of us here will have strayed quite near thoughts and feelings like this. Some of us will have dived right into them. It's quite scary even bringing these questions out in the open. Because for some of us, thoughts like this are an open wound. Is God actually for me? Does he love me? Why has he allowed these things to happen to me or not to happen to me? I want to notice two things as the story unfolds from this point. The first thing is that the boy is saved. In the end, the widow turns out to be wrong in verse 18. God has not just come to remind her of her sin and kill her son. That thought, that doubt, it was false. The child is brought back and delivered to her, his mother and she sings praise. 
I think we should hear in that a reminder that our darkest thoughts are rarely our best thoughts. Rarely do we see the truth about God in our moments of anger and doubt and fear. We, we are allowed to express feelings to God like this, right? God can handle our angry, fearful questions. He doesn't abandon this widow because she speaks this way, and he will not abandon us. But we should be wary of how we speak and think in our darkest moments. For we don't always speak the truth. The truth was that the Lord did bless this woman and her son, and Elijah's presence meant life for them in the end and not death. And yet, here's the second thing. The way to that life ran through the valley of the shadow of death. This was true for Elijah too. Look what Elijah prays after he takes the boy in verse 20. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy? Even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? This is a genuine question, right? Elijah is a prophet, but still... He doesn't have some special access to everything God is doing. There is pain in his voice here. He's a human being in perplexity and grief. His prayer is desperate and heartfelt. He stretched himself out on the boy, verse 21, three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Even Elijah the prophet prayed desperately in that little room, staring into despair and darkness. The way of faith runs through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Why is it like this? Here, of course, we come to a deep mystery with little time left to consider it. Actually, I've blown out, so not enough time. But it is important, so let me just observe two things. The first is that we see in this story, I think, that God uses these experiences to bring spiritual growth in both the, the widow and Elijah. You see at the end, verse 24, the widow declares her faith. Now I know she has a new confidence she has a knowledge she didn't have before. She has grown. Elijah, too. Would Elijah have prayed like this? Would he have dared to ask like this without this struggle? We will see in the chapters that are coming that he is going to need great strength of faith. So one reason that the way of faith is the way it is is because God is working on us. He is forming us. Just to speak personally, I wonder if I would still be a Christian if I hadn't had to rely on God and learn to pray and depend on Him in new ways and wrestle with confusion and perplexity and grief after my father died suddenly when I was 18. 
I certainly would not be the shape I am. But there's a second thing I want to observe, which is not in the passage, but it is connected. It's that the same pattern was true for Jesus as well. For Jesus too, the way of faith ran through the valley of the shadow of death. Although his suffering never turned into doubt and anger, he too did face distress and confusion as he went forward in faith. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He pleaded with God in the Garden of Gethsemane to take this cup from him. And he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The book of Hebrews says what's happening in an amazing way. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Because Jesus didn't need to grow in the same way that we do. He did not sin. He never suspected that God was actually evil. He never spoke to his father in anger. God did not need to draw Jesus closer to himself through suffering in the way that he often does with us. For Jesus, the path of faith should have been only always in the the light of noonday. And yet, through the darkness, he walked to save us, to save us, to carve open a path for us out of the valley and into the light. He went through the darkness of the cross, not because he deserved it or he needed it, but so that he might open the way to life beyond it. You know, that's the mystery that's hidden in this story of God's grace to this widow and her son. Because make no mistake, it was grace that we see here. The widow was not wrong to think that her sin was a problem. It was a problem, as is ours. But she was wrong to think that God's purpose was only to show her her sin and pass judgment. No. God's purpose was grace. And that grace is the grace that he gave once and for all in his son, Jesus Christ, who went all the way into the deepest darkness of the cross that we might live with him. So, brothers and sisters, when the way of faith leads you into the valley, know this. What is happening is that you are being saved. For Christ himself walked that way before us. So that the path would lead on to life. So that beyond the cross there would be resurrection from the dead. 
So here is a lesson in faith. Not maybe the most pleasant lesson, but one that I hope is worth learning. Christian faith is just not a ticket to ease and success. It is an invitation to go forward into a future that is always unknown in trust in the promises of God. And this may well lead us into confusion and distress and perplexity into the valley of the shadow of death. But we need not doubt the path. For the Lord is the living God who cannot be hindered and who has gone ahead of us in Jesus to bring us through. He is taking us on to life. He is forming us in the likeness of his Son. Not even death and sin can hinder his word to us. That is life. Amen.